You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, Fiona, our editor, will give us an update on the BMJ's open data campaign. It seems important for any drug, but specifically a drug which has cost the NHS such a large amount of money and on which the evidence of effectiveness and safety is so uh, controversial at the moment that we ought to be able to know in great detail, really, what data that decision was based on. But first, Mabel Chu finds out about non-celiac gluten sensitivity. I have with me online David Sanders, who's Professor of Gastroenterology at Royal Hampshire Hospital in Sheffield in the UK. David, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Hello, thank you for inviting me. David, we see and know lots of people who eat a gluten-free diet, and the gluten-free food industry is certainly massive, but GPs like me are increasingly testing for celiac disease in people who say they have gluten-related symptoms, yet we then find they don't have the markers for celiac disease. What's going on here? I think if we look at celiac disease first, that might give you an interesting overview. We have seen a rise in the prevalence of celiac disease. The PMG reported back in the 1950s a prevalence of about one in 8,000. And contemporary 21st century studies suggest that this is actually affecting 1% of the population. Is that because we have better diagnostic tests? Of course, it's possible that it's diagnostic tests and that we're more aware and that we have better and easier endoscopy. Um, But actually, there are now three or four studies demonstrating a clear increase uh, in groups of patients who've been tested at a single time point and then had a repeat test at a later stage. Um, the, The Finnish research group are probably the world leaders in celiac disease, and they have clearly demonstrated a prevalence in their population, which is very geographically stable, of about 1% in 1980, uh, and then 2% uh, 20 years later. So this this would be a good point at which to define what, what you actually mean by celiac disease. Yes. For me, it's very important that we're very clear about the diagnosis of celiac disease. That has to be somebody uh, who has a positive celiac serology. This may be an endomyceal antibody or a tissue transglutaminase antibody. We are seeing other contemporary serological markers emerging. But at the same time, this individual has to have villous atrophy on biopsy. And that is a cast iron diagnosis of celiac disease. That leads us on to this concept of perhaps what is called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And this, of course, is exactly what you were talking about, the idea that you exclude celiac disease and you've excluded wheat allergy using IgE testing, but then you're left with this group who are still symptomatic. And I think historically, what happened to these individuals was that they were told they didn't have celiac disease and that was that. They, they were then left to their own devices. Whilst now, uh, internationally, there is emerging evidence that maybe this group of patients actually do have uh, some uh, biological or pathological mechanism underlying their symptoms. What a number of groups have looked at are um, individuals with gastrointestinal symptoms predominantly. Uh, There are now two randomized studies that suggest that actually 
this group of individuals respond to a gluten-free diet and that their conventional markers for celiac disease are, are unchanged through this period. So maybe that suggests a different immune mechanism. And that's something I think over the next 10 to 20 years we'll be um, studying to try and understand this better. When you say the conventional markers are unchanged, do you yeah. mean by that the serological and pathological markers? Yes. If you, if you take a biopsy, it will be normal or near normal. You may have intrahepithelial lymphocytes. If you look at their um, serological markers that are accepted for celiac disease, they will be negative, uh, although it has been suggested maybe glidins that have always been viewed as not particularly sensitive for the diagnosis of celiac disease, that they may be uh, elevated in people with non-celiac gluten sensitivity. But I hasten to add that all of the studies that we're discussing are relatively small numbers. It's gathering experience from perhaps four or five international centers that are, are recording or reporting their findings. And our perspective of the pathology may change. Okay, now, now celiac disease we know uh, can be associated with certain uh, gastrointestinal lymphomas. Yeah. Uh, do we know if those sorts, sorts of complications can uh, also be present in non-celiac gluten sensitivity? Uh, we don't know the answer to that. My uh, hunch, which is not evidence-based, but viewed on the fact that I have uh, seen both groups of patients, I haven't seen similar situations occurring in a non-celiac gluten sensitivity patient. Now, you discuss all of this in your article for the BMJ's Uncertainties page, and you yeah. also mentioned the rather interesting um, uh, question of whether it is actually gluten that's the culprit here. Yes, I think that's a very important point. Recently, um, from an Australian group in Melbourne, there has been interest in something called FODMAPs. Uh, and this is effectively looking at a dietary form of therapies or an approach uh, towards people with gastrointestinal symptoms or IBS, whichever you would like to call them. And FODMAPs basically stands for uh, fructans, oligosaccharides, disaccharides, um, monosaccharides and polyols. What, what this group have, have effectively described is by removing FODMAPs from your diet, you actually reduce symptoms of bloating and other uh, gastrointestinal symptoms. There is a little bit of overlap between things that are within a FODMAP diet and perhaps gluten. And maybe one of the things that we're starting to consider is that we don't actually necessarily know which component of wheat or if indeed there are many, that cause symptoms. That sounds very interesting. Now, let's turn to what GPs and, and other clinicians ought to be doing right here and now. For patients who report symptoms that are related to gluten, um, your advice is to exclude celiac disease with antibody testing and duodenal biopsies while they're on the gluten-containing uh, diet, and also to exclude wheat allergy, for instance, with an IgE serum assay or, or skin prick test. Would that be a, a, a fair summary of your advice? Absolutely. Yeah, that would be uh, exactly what I do. You, you, I, I really worry about uh, saying to someone, give it a go, which for me, muddies the water. If you say to somebody, without doing any of these things, well, let's just see whether a gluten-free diet works for you or not, then actually you haven't really teased out what group this patient 
is in. And of course, that has ramifications in terms of what advice you'd give them for long-term complications. Would you test their family if they're an index case for celiac disease? So um, I absolutely agree with you. That's the starting point for making this diagnosis. Okay. And if they have negative results, um, we then head down the pathway of saying to them they probably have this newly recognized entity called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Would that be correct? Yes. I, I, I think that um, it, it is trying to give patients a sense of what evidence is emerging. Um, often I find with these individuals that they are very grateful that somebody is actually talking to them about this because they have been observing it in themselves uh, and uh, in a sense it's trying to make sense of their symptoms um, whilst perhaps previously they were told you don't have celiac disease or you don't have wheat allergy and I'm not sure what's wrong with you uh, and so that was much harder for, for patients as you can imagine. Yes. Well, look, thank you, David. That's a very useful summary of the state of knowledge on non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And that paper and an accompanying patient journey are available online on bmj.com. Now, we're joined in the studio by Fiona Godley, the BMJ's editor-in-chief, to talk about Tamiflu. Fiona, things have moved on at a pace with this campaign, and the latest salvo from you is aimed at NICE. Uh, in an open letter to their chairman, Mike Rawlings, you've asked that Tamiflu be removed from their recommended list. So can you tell us what this is all about? The work that the Cochrane Review Group have d has done suggests that the decisions about making Tamiflu available in the NHS were made on the back of the information available to the European Medicines Agency. Uh, and we are pretty confident that that information is incomplete, that there are quite a large number of trials that weren't taken into account when the EMA reviewed the drug. And I was very interested to understand to what extent NICE relies on that EMA judgment in making its own assessment. We've also got um, quite good information that the review group who undertook the review for NICE uh, relied heavily on working closely with Roche and that Roche uh, for example, declined to or, or advised that a certain amount of the data didn't need to be included in the review. Now, it's hard to judge because we haven't got the full picture and it may be that this is all fine and that the data that were not included were irrelevant. But it seems important for any drug, but specifically a drug which has cost the NHS such a large amount of money and on which the evidence of effectiveness and safety is so uh, controversial at the moment, that we ought to be able to know in great detail, really, what data that decision was based on. And Mike Rawlings has now replied to you. Are you satisfied with the answer? Mike Rawlings' reply is, is very good. It's very robust. It's very thorough. He, he's promised to have a detailed look at the uh, decision and, on, and the evidence on which it was based when NICE agreed to approve Tamiflu for the NHS. But his letter usefully opens up additional avenues of uh, in inquiry and pl other places where we can perhaps put some pressure to try to get these data into the public domain. Uh, he talks about the fact that NICE relies on the integrity of the medical director at the drug company um, who has to sign a statement saying that all relevant data have been made available to NICE. And I thought that was very interesting. Um, 
I think it's worth pursuing that. Uh, and also, I'm interested that that is the basis on which NICE is is relying for the decision it makes. Um, Mike Rawlins is really saying that he thinks he's confident that they did have all the data. And obviously, we need to, um, he, he's, he's asked to see the evidence that that was not the case. And, and the Cochrane Review Group, I think, will be in touch with NICE to put their case to him. Now, there's been one more development. Sarah Wollaston, the MP who's been the sort of voice of this campaign in Parliament, has requested that the Public Accounts Committee have a look at this issue. So can you explain why that's significant? Yes, I think this is a significant step. The Public Accounts Committee is um, a a committee within uh, government, within Parliament, which looks at the use of public money um, and to make sure that the government and, and taxpayers are getting value for money. It's most recently looked at the tax affairs and and the um, tax avoidance of um, companies like Google and Starbucks and Amazon, uh, with some good effect putting them in the spotlight. Uh, It would seem appropriate that the Public Accounts Committee looks at the basis of the decision on which Tamiflu was stockpiled within the UK at a cost of a really substantial part of the NHS budget for 2011. 500 million, um, which, you know, could have been better spent, one might argue, (laughs) on other interventions. So we very much hope that the Public Accounts Committee will take this on. uh, And not only with Tamiflu, although I think that is an important drug to look at, but we're keen to stress that Tamiflu and Roche are not unique in this um, situation where data seem to be being hidden and decisions to spend public money are being made on incomplete information. Okay, so that's what's happening in Parliament. What's next for the BMJ? I think we want to keep attention on the problem. We want to make sure that it's clear that this relates to not only pharmaceutical trials, but also trials done by academics and funded by public bodies. Um, We want to, again, make clear that it's not just Tamiflu. This is an industry-wide problem. Uh, We want to push... keep keep attention on the EMA's decision to make trial data publicly available as from 2014 and to help the EMA in the quite difficult conversations they're going to have to have in how to implement that policy. Um, I very much hope the other journals will adopt a similar policy to the one the BMJ has adopted, requiring authors to commit to making their data available on request. Um, so there's a, a range of of initiatives to keep this in the public domain, I think in the long run, and perhaps maybe not too much in the distant future, we would want to see um, patients understanding that when they enter into a trial, they should make, as part of their consent form, a requirement that the data they donate into that trial, their own personal clinical data, uh, will be made publicly available in anonymised form. Um, and, And the more that patients understand that in that is the only way in which their data will be really useful to clinical science. And the more the pressure comes from them, I think the quicker progress we will make. Fiona, thanks for the update. That's all for this week, and almost all for the year. Next week, the Christmas edition of the BMJ will be hitting your doorsteps, and we'll have some of that festive fare. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.